president takes his pin to the Affordable Care Act last week. And our friends from the Trump Report join us for a panel discussion. Also, a run-for-something endorsed candidate in Detroit millennial Garland Gilcrest II is here to discuss his campaign for city clerk. It's Tuesday, October 17th. Welcome to The Political Beat. You're tuning in to the destination for TV superfan discussion, After Buzz TV. And now, let the buzz begin. Hey everybody, welcome to AfterBuzz TV's The Political Beat, the millennial show and podcast, breaking down the latest in Washington and everything that you need to know from around the world. Uh, I'm your host, Drexel Hurd. Wow, that's a big, tall order. Everything from around the world. Around the world. Woo! In 60 minutes, or less than that. I'm your host, Drexel Hurd, the semi-moderate voice of the left. You can follow me on social media at Drexel Hurd. And I'm Chelsea Galicia, the lefter of the left. You can follow me at Chelsea Galicia. Um, some housekeeping items. Um, we know we were scheduled to have uh, Texas Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke this week. Um, we've got a little campaign um, scheduling, so we're going to get him back on. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a Senate pro tem Democrat Kevin DeLeon, who is going to be scheduled uh, to come on the show to discuss his campaign against Senator Diane. Feinstein. Good times. Uh, yeah. Uh, Only first, political geeks like us would be this excited about it. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be good. Uh, first up on today's show, we'll start with the interview uh, with Garland Gilchrist. And then in the breakdown, we'll discuss the president's decision on the Affordable Care Act and then the follow-up you know, two-year thingy that is being talked about. It's much better than a thingy, but, you know. Yeah, and uh, in the spotlight, we're going to highlight another breast cancer organization, as it, as it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, uh, that helps millions of women across the country. But first up, uh, millennials across the country are stepping up to the plate to run for something. A couple of weeks ago, we had Executive Director Amanda Littman uh, on the show to discuss the organization. Over the next few months, we'll be highlighting those endorsed candidates. Uh, today, Run for Something endorsed 37 new candidates. Today? Today. Ooh, I know. I didn't know that. Uh, and and, uh, and they're going to come on the show to talk about why they chose to step up and lead, uh, starting with today's interview. He's currently running for city clerk in the city of Detroit, Welcome to the program, Garland Gilcrest the second. Which Drexel loves because he's too. <laughs> the Thank you for having important. me. Yes, another second and, and on the phone on the line is great. This is this is a great night. Thanks for coming on the show. So uh first off, can you explain to us, because I don't know, and maybe our viewers that don't know, what are the duties of a city clerk? Sure. So in the city of Detroit, the city clerk has three responsibilities. The first is to manage the voting and elections process. The second is to be the city's official public record keeper, meaning it's the clerk's job to give people information about what the government is doing. And the third is to be the clerk of the city council so that you give citizens, residents, businesses, et cetera, access to the city council and all the decision-making process therein. So really, the way I think about it is it's the city clerk's job to open the doorway to democracy and decision-making in Detroit. And why this is relevant um, to y'all really is that the elections in Detroit have national consequences. The failure of elections in Detroit, the failure in voter turnout in Detroit is what paved the way for Donald Trump to be the first Republican to win Michigan since 1988. And then Donald Trump winning Michigan made it easier for him to become the president. And now we have to deal with that every single day. And it hurts me that Detroit played a role. Yikes. Okay. So... You are up against a three-term incumbent for this uh, job, which, geez, is a whole lot more important than I even thought it was. Um, how do you um, plan to sort of overcome the, the hurdle that can be unseating an incumbent? 
Sure. So Birth is really great to have the support of, 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 of friends and partner organizations like Run for Something. I was actually the first candidate they endorsed outside of the state of Virginia uh, when, during my primary, which was on August 8th. And my campaign got to the primary, even though I was a political newcomer. You know, I've never run for political office before. I'm a millennial. I just turned 35. And there was I was running in a seven candidate field of people who all had name recognition. Some of them had been in elected office or had sought elected office a number of times or were just like very prominent activists. And the way that we won was we took it directly to the voters. We we contacted people directly in their homes, recruited more volunteers than any other campaign, and knocked on more doors than any all the other candidates combined. We used social media to reach people where they are because you know seventy percent of people in Detroit use Facebook, and so we're taking those same tactics into the general. You know, my before I came home to Detroit. I was national campaign director at MoveOn.org. I, I recruited 34,000 volunteers for President Obama in 2012. I helped stand up the text message program in 2008. So I'm used to using new tools to pull new people in the political process, and that's exactly what we're doing on a local level, doing things that really haven't ever been seen in a municipal race before. We're the first campaign to do basically phone banking via text message in a city-level race. That's happened in state level races. That's, that's what Hustle did for the Bernie campaign and the presidential. We're doing it on a city level for the first time that's, that's ever been happening in the country. And the result is we're able to reach more people more efficiently with more volunteers and more energy than any campaign that really has ever taken place in Detroit. And you need that kind of movement building in order to really unseat an incumbent. And so we're proud. You know, we've been able to uh, build this movement of with more than 500 volunteers for a city clerk's race, a race that y'all didn't even know what That's the crazy. position right. was. And so I, mean, I think we kind of knew like uh, a little we got bit. 500 but volunteers. We've gotten, we've been able to get um, support from donors from 48 states. Wow. And so what it shows is that not only is this campaign and this position and the the, the consequence of the position are, are national in scope. But it means that people understand that it's important. And when people from across the country, across the state and across the city are looking at the candidate who can change this office, who's most qualified and who's really has the energy to serve, um, they're choosing the Gilchrist campaign. I'm really humbled by that. That's amazing. Um, So on your website, I think on your on your social media, there's a quote that you said, I've been preparing to be for this my whole life. I've been preparing to be city clerk my whole life. What do you think prepares you other than, you know, kind of being a grassroots organizer, what do you think prepares yeah. you for to step into this role to over, for a job that clearly is bigger than some people might not, you know, might think? I mean, what prepares you? What prepared you for this role? Yeah, specifically, the person who, who serves Detroiters as their city clerk needs to be a problem solver and someone who knows how to fix broken systems. You know, I have two engineering degrees from the University of Michigan in computer engineering and computer science. I worked as a software engineer at Microsoft for four years. I know how to fix complex systems. You know, after my activism work um, on both Obama campaigns as an organizer with the Center for Community Change and the national campaign director at MoveOn.org, where I was a voting rights advocate, very effective at fighting and winning campaigns for voting rights all across the country, I came back home to Detroit after my children were born to be a problem solver. I was the director of innovation and emerging technology for the city of Detroit, which means I was the number two in the technology department. And I fixed broken, complicated systems like how people fix and how we fix and manage fire hydrants to how we deliver city services in a more trustworthy way. Well, that kind of problem solving is exactly what we need in the city clerk's office. Now, this time last year, I hadn't thought about running for political office in my career. It wasn't something that was on my radar. But after the failure of an election in 2000, 
in November 2016, I had a really bad personal voting experience with my own family. Where we had a failed polling location where the voting machines broke and people didn't, who worked polls didn't know what to do. And they ran out of paper and they ran out of pens and they ran out of things to cover up your ballots. It was a mess. They waited an hour and a half and a low voters in our election. You know, it became clear to members of the community that I was that I had qualified to to fix the broken systems in that office and better serve voters and inform and empower them. So the specific things that I've done in my career and knowing how to fix systems, having the competence and confidence to do so, but also knowing how to mobilize people and engage new people in the political process to recruit new people to come and work for this system to change it for the better. That's what prepared me. And I hadn't thought about that until people really, uh, you know, came to my wife and I and asked us to consider committing as a family to running for this office. And you know, honestly, the reason we said yes is because, you know, I saw my parents, in their volunteer time, served the neighborhood that I grew up in on the east side of Detroit. My mother ran our neighborhood association for six years. My Both of my parents served in what's called a citizen district council, which is kind of these local, hyper-local governing bodies in the mm-hmm. city of Detroit. And so I saw that as a small child, and I wanted my twin three-year-olds, who are in, who just turned four on September 25th, Happy which birthday. also happens to be my birthday, <laughs> I wanted them to see their father stepping up to serve the community in a way that he was uniquely prepared. And so my wife and I made that commitment, and, and we're here, and we... We were unexpected. We did not. We were not expected to get through the primary by the political establishment. First had had us at two percent, virtually unknown, and we got twenty percent in the primary and came in second place. That's so crazy. now we're poised to really make history and unseated and come in the city clerk's office. And I'm excited about it. So you brought up your family. So how has you? I mean, you guys are fairly young still. How does that yes. – we watch a lot of political family, families go through this political machine. How has your family adapted to that? Um, not, I mean, you said that your immediate family is a, has been a part of the political process, but not necessarily your wife. And now you've got these two kids that are, like, looking at dad and like, hey, why is dad not here? And, so, uh, and, and he's out. <laughs> no, and totally, he, totally. That's real. I mean, basically the reason I almost didn't run for office was because my kids are so young. And, you know, it would mean that mean that daddy would need to be gone basically every night for virtually a year. Right. And that is an insane proposition for, for two, three year olds. And I was the person I take my kids to school every day and I picked and I um, relieved our child care every day and started dinner. So that was something that was really um, a big transition for our family. But my wife's a superhero. We've been married eight years. Our anniversary was this past July. My wife actually just ran the Detroit Free Press Marathon on Sunday. Wow, so she was nice. training for a marathon while this was happening so i married a legitimate bona fide <laughs> superhero and it's but it's been it's been um actually we, we dove in it's been great you know we wouldn't have done this if we didn't think there was a path to victory and we're, and we're following that path and my kids have really embraced it my, my son's favorite shirt is his campaign t-shirt he told me and we have a bunch of uh chants that we made up for the labor day march in detroit and like my my children will sometimes randomly break out and they'll say like um you know Fired up, standing tall, fired right. up. Standing Move tall. over, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Stars. So, we so got a better really, song. We say standing tall for Detroit. That's my tagline. I'm 6'8", so I'm really tall. And so we try to be really on the nose with that. And um, But the children really enjoy it. And so we, we've embraced it as a family. We're not the first people who had young children to run for office before. Somehow others figured it out. We knew that we could figure it out, too, because this was important. And empowering and, and informing uh, Detroiters so that they could be you know, have full impact on the decision-making processes that impact their lives every day was really important to us, and, uh, and we really felt like I was uniquely qualified to serve. Speaking of your city, Detroit gets dumped on a lot by Republicans. It's Detroit or Chicago. What would you say to people who just say Detroit is just a failing city? 
I would say that it doesn't help when the city is a national embarrassment for not being able to count votes properly. And I would say that we need to counter that with better leadership overall. And I think for people who have a, a generally negative narrative about Detroit, I mean, that's grounded in a lot of unfortunate things, bad headlines due to narrow storytelling, um, due to racism straight up because it's the, still the blackest city in the country, um, a city that's had, that's had its share of problems, but also has probably the lion's share of problem solvers in the state of Michigan who have been doing this on a very local level every day trying to make ends meet. I think it's important that um, people get a chance to hear and see and feel their stories. So um, I'm always encouraging people who have something negative to say to Detroit, ask them to see, well, have you even tried to understand anything uh, in a different narrative? you ever tried to understand anything that was different and positive? You know, when I moved out of uh, the state after college, I found myself being like the chief Detroit advocate. It was my official job title. I wasn't a software engineer or anything like that. I was like the chief Detroit advocate. And that came to a head actually in 2011. I actually started an organization when I was living in D.C. called Detroit Diaspora. And the whole premise of the organization was to te- get Detroiters who lived in these other cities because we the, the chief export of Detroiters was people who wanted to go um, build their careers in other places. And so we actually uh, brought people together in those other cities to tell their Detroit stories and, and encourage them actually to consider being useful to Detroit in some way. And my, my secret goal was to get everybody to move back home. <laughs> and I was happy to ultimately do that myself with my own family in 2014. Well, it's not secret anymore. So everybody had to go back right. to Detroit. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the cat is out of the bag. Right? Out of the yeah, bag. Yeah, I need to come home. Real. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> We're ready for you. <laughs> Last question. So uh, something that we ask uh, at least all the candidates that we've had on the show so far. Uh, what are your top three priorities for your city and how do you plan on accomplishing them? Yeah, the first one is we have important elections coming up in, in Detroit and in the state of Michigan in 2018. And beyond the midterm elections, we have a senator on the ballot and we have our congressional races. We also have a gubernatorial race in Michigan and we have state legislative races. We have judges, we have ballot initiatives, one that's hopefully going to be on the ballot for gerrymandering. So it's a very important thing. So I'm going to be laser focused on increasing voter turnout in 2018. Our election in this past August had less than 14% voter turnout. The presidential election in Detroit had 41% voter turnout. Those are uh, those numbers indicate failure and a, and, a, and a lack of confidence in the Detroit city clerk and the person who's responsible for elections. So my priorities are going to be making sure that voting is easy and convenient. One, making sure people are voting at the polling place that's closest to where they live. Some people live across the street or two doors down from a polling place yet vote two miles away in Detroit. We need to make that more convenient. The second is using um, research-proven methods to increase turnout, like having people make election day plans and encouraging them to do so, giving them templates to do so, using media, um, social media, billboards, et cetera, to get people to understand and make a decision for what time they're going to vote on election day before election day. As you give you a concrete example, 70% of people in Detroit use Facebook, but our current Department of Elections has not updated Facebook page since September 11th, 2013. That's before my children were born. So people who go to Facebook every day are not able to get information about voter registration deadlines, election day reminders, these sorts of things. And the last thing is making sure that people actually are, um, you know, 99% of people in Detroit have a cell phone that can receive a text message. So uh, research shows that if a person gets a text message reminder within two days of election day, that reminds them of the election day and tells them where their polling location is, they're more likely to actually go and vote mm-hmm. because they received and read that text message. Well, when I was working as the director of innovation for the city, I procured the system that the city government uses to receive to send text messages to residents. The current city clerk does not utilize that platform. 
And so I'm going to make sure that we're using that to demonstrate how we can use research proven methods to increase voter turnout and get more people engaged and get more people registered starting next year. Well, that wow. sounds like a plan. I'm excited for the city uh, of Detroit. I, I am fired up and standing tall. No Who doubt. <laughs> well played, Drexel. Well played. I wrote it down so I would remember. So <laughs> uh, we'll leave it right there. I know you uh, got to get back out there uh, and win this thing. So uh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on today's show, and uh, we we'll have forward. you back I, on to hear your I, success stories. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Election Day is November 7th. Um, people can, if they want more information, can check me out at GilchristForCityClerk.com or on Facebook at GilchristForCityClerk.com for GilchristForCityClerk. You can donate at the website. I'm on at Blue, and you know we want to continue to to really show that change is possible, that revolution is possible, and I'm, and I'm happy to have the support from people all across the country to build a movement for participation in Detroit. Sounds wow. great. Thanks, Carlin. Good luck on the campaign trail, sir. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Woo! Wow, that was good. <laughs> I, I think he's going to run for Congress. I do not Man. doubt. He sounds like a congressman. I mean, he is on it. Yeah, it's good. I don't even know if you can like it's train to somebody watch. to be that good. Yeah, he just especially for a new candidate. And there was, I mean, it was just good. It was just there was good. no talking in circles, right. no like no obvious pivots to something totally different from the question. I mean, he answered the question and then brought in the other things that he right. wanted. To, I mean, he is a pro. Yeah, you know who's not a pro? <laughs> Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, he's not a pro. Not a pro at anything, actually. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's talk uh, about what's been going on. So uh, yes, in the breakdown. Yeah, the Trump administration is very good at confusing the shit out of Americans by <laughs> dumping major policy changes. It's written right. It's here. written. <laughs> Guys, I write a we write a script every week. It says that right in the script. Um, uh, uh, major policy changes at the end of the week so that no one can pay attention. Uh, it's very hard for me to like on Fridays. I'm like, what are we going to get today? Uh, first off, uh, first off, that's another authoritarian move. Uh, uh, you know, days are the days of the authoritarian. Well, just, just just putting it all out at the same time, like like and waiting so till the end of the waiting week, waiting until we all cannot pay attention and it's all coming to a head. Um, so it's definitely something that people should be concerned about. Um, last week, healthcare. We know the Republicans have tried everything under the sun to get the Affordable Care Act repealed, and it gets keeps getting thwarted by what I'm going to call the Democrats Scooby Doo and the gang. Oh, but does that include McCain and? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can include them, too. Huh. Um, Mitch McConnell is like the guy with the, you know, who gets the mask taken off. And then John McCain and, and the Democrats come in and they they they, they thwart him. Oof. It's, it's Trump pretty, wasn't going to take that. No. Down. He, uh, he frustrated with the in- inaction of Congress to repeal the Obamacare. Obamacare Obama signed an executive order to stop payments to insurance companies from the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, we all know that the ACA uh, created a subsidy system for low and some middle income families to help in the purchase of insurance on state insurance exchange. The law set a cap on the amount of insurance premiums that individuals and families will have to pay for the second cheapest silver plan based upon that person's family income in relation to the federal poverty level. So let's bring in our friends from the Trump Report to discuss this. Uh, You all know Mr. Scott Moore from the Trump Report. He's been on the show before when it was like political culture. It was a whole different ballgame. Don't confuse people. And the first... (laughs) (laughs) I'm confused. And I think the first time on today's show... Yes. Miss Brooks Elise Taylor, welcome Thank to the guys. show. Thanks so for having us. Welcome to this new studio. It's a little chilly in here. I it's, like it. It's though. like an ice box. It looks like an ice nice box for me. We were talking about how bef- before we went on that the last time the three of us, Drexel, Scott, and I were in this room, 
bad things were happening. Bad things. But yeah. get your mind out of the gutter. Yeah. That was the election night. <laughs> it was like it was it was a it was a crazy it was crazy awful. night. So listen, um let's uh let's let's talk about this. So I wanna know from you, Scott, let's start with you. Uh, why is it that Republicans despise American families? <laughs> <laughs> why despise everything about why, American why, why do they hate Americans and American families? <laughs> It's not so much their hate for Americans and American families as much as their hate for Obama and anything that he did. Mm-hmm. So they will they would rather you know destroy health insurance for American families than take anything that Obama did and and go with it. So, so. in turn hating American yes, families. Yes, as a byproduct of that and of that hatred to Obama. Do we know how many people would be affected if the subsidies were withdrawn? Oh, it was uh, the CBO did and it was going to be several million and also the instability of the markets from getting rid of those subsidies, too, would raise premiums by even more for everybody. And it would also uh, further destabilize the economy just in general because, you know, this 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 whole thing they've been doing has not been thought out. And all they want to do is repeal because that's what they're going after with their base. It reminds me of, like, the game Jenga. Like, they're going to mm-hmm. pull out each piece that, and, that's what and they doing. don't know the one that's going to mm-hmm. cause the whole thing to topple over. So something uh, last week that Donald Trump said, and we're going to talk about this press conference here in a second, but he made a comment about why he feels somebody asked him, are you going to re- are you going to do- redo everything that the president Obama has of the Obama administration's last administration has put forth? And his answer was so simple. Like I was, you know, it's one of those he said yes. He said yes. <laughs> and he said yes because he was like, well, it's a new administration in his head. A new leader means complete turnover of policies. But what do you think about that? Oh, goodness. He doesn't know left from right these days. First, Obamacare is dead. It's dying. It's dead. It's it's on the floor. It's DOA. And now we have these subsidies that are going to keep everything alive for the next two years. We know it's about Trump's ego and need for control. And that's why, like you guys mentioned, he just wants to be sure that anything that has Obama's name on it is kaput. But do you think obviously. he would do that... Had I don't he think he been... has the ability because he doesn't even have the wherewithal to know everything that Obama's done. Well, I mean, somebody, somebody, somebody nobody tells him. Yeah, exactly. Stephen Miller Keep some of those orders the... like under the table. We, you we know? know Stephen Miller's in the White House, line iteming everything. Find out what Obama did. Um, but exactly. do you think that? Do you think that in that respect, that Donald Trump would do that had he had a Republican predecessor? Like, with the idea of... No, he, I don't. I actually don't. I think that, de- well, depending on his relationship with that predecessor. Like if it was McCain. Well, if it was McCain, then <laughs> or yes. Romney. Or yes. Romney. Yes. Or Romney. But uh, it, it, I think it would more so depend on, on that relationship and if it was ongoing and if that predecessor is, like, kind of kissing his ass still now that he's president. Like, as long as you're kind of stroking, I don't want to say the word, but <laughs> then, you know, he's more apt to look the other way, but... But it seems like he just wants to show his political power and destroy everything in his path so that he can create a new, when in reality, you know, he doesn't really know what he's doing. And can I say this really quickly before we go on? Sure. The, the guy that you guys just spoke to, yeah. Garland, the most eloquent, well-spoken, yes. intelligent man. I do foresee this man I know, going sorry. very, yeah. very <laughs> I want to run for Congress and now. He's six, eight, I had to say something. I mean, I was listening... Six eight. That's you, amazing. You had to yeah, say something like, about yeah. no his height. I love tall men. I know you're married, Garland, but uh, not, not saying that. I just, I'm married. I, and I love tall men. <laughs> I just foresee. I just foresee this man going very, very far in the political process and whatever it yeah. is that he does. Like that is 
That is the way a president should be speaking. That is right. the, uh, it, 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 great. And you know, I've heard they say, I don't know if this is true, maybe Scott, like the historian, can tell us that every time in the presidential election, whoever the taller mm-hmm. candidate is oh, wins. Yeah. Yeah. Statistics yeah. show that yep. even with That's getting accurate. a job. Yes, it is. All right, well. Yes, yeah, same That's... thing with a job. Yep. Even with a job, you're more you're, you success make more money in general. The taller you are, the taller you are, the more money you make. This um, sucks. Well, you know who <laughs> left too. The other tall person in <laughs> the other tall person in the room the other day was uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, the oh, president Lord. had a they had a meeting, and then they had an impromptu press conference. Um, so let's talk about the relationship between Congress and the executive branch real quick. So, do you guys feel that the Obama administration? Sci- on on health care. Do you guys think that the Obama administration sidestepped Congress to get these paid out? Like, we know that Congress never appropriated the money directly. But, and that the executive branch paid for these subsidies, subsidies out of the HHS budget. Once money is appropriated, do you guys think that the executive branch has the authority to move money however they feel like it? Ooh, the lawyer in me doesn't know the answer to this one. And I'm a little reluctant to even take a stab yeah. at it because it's it's it feels like it's one of those things that's clear yes or no but probably if you took a look at the text it, mm-hmm. we would have no idea it would have to be litigated i don't yeah. know you got I, it? I, I, i'm asking because i i think there is there is a legal argument out there that it is illegal there's obviously the trump administration believes uh, at least their justice department has ruled that it is illegal and this is why they've stopped the payments in the first place because they feel like the executive branch does not have the power and the obama administration sidestepped congress and congress wanted to be a part of the process and then but we all know that the time that congress we talked about it last week early talked about in the trump report which was once once they got to the point where affordable characters were being executed republicans had basically already taken over the congress at that point so um, they certainly weren't going to appropriate money to cover subsidies that they didn't vote for in the first right. place. I, I think it's a it's a gray area, but let's be honest: what the Trump administration is doing is purely political. It, it, it's a gray area, but the, the fact that they they hate everything about Obamacare, they want to do everything like Chelsea was saying with the Jenga game, like everything they can do to start poking at it and pulling parts of it out to make sure that it fails and implodes on itself. Um, because if you were just to step back and do a nonpartisan look at it all. And if, if Congress was really not going to be so gridlocked and partisan and really re- was going to look in the best ways to keep the best parts of Obamacare afloat and, and really come with a bipartisan plan, I think they would have a better agreement on you know where this money should be allocated and who should be responsible for it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it is definitely a gray area as far as the stepping back nonpartisan, how the law is set up, as far as what the executive branch can and cannot do. So earlier I was talking about this two-year thingy that a couple of senators had put together, and uh, what it actually is is a bipartisan deal. So far it's just these two senators, so Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, mm-hmm. who have agreed to it. We have no idea if the House would go for this. But their idea... We know that the House would never, never this go for it. I would say that, too. I would, ever go I would say likely like they would this. never well, go for I it. Mean, they're they, non-committal right there now. There are some that seem to be standing and saying, hey, okay, we'll go ahead and implement this so that we you know, reduce the it's a instability and chaos. But we're still working on repealing mm-hmm. yeah. the ACA. It, it kind of allows them to save face. Yeah, exactly. Just, right. That's why they're doing it. That's the so only reason. So that might be the reason why they go for it, because this is not the permanent solution. We are still committed to repealing mm-hmm. But not I don't actually. See, here's here's what I say about that though, 
conservatives, if you listen to conservatives like Rand Paul, Mike Lee, some of those conservatives in the Senate, and then a lot, there's a lot more conservatives in the House right. who have this who have this fiscal responsibility mindset. Oh, so, please. Yeah, well, I mean, in their head. In their <laughs> what head. they call fiscal right. responsibility. Right, what they believe fiscal responsibility. So I, I'm a little skeptical of House members because they run every every other, Two basically years. they're basically <laughs> constantly, always year, running. constantly always running, um, that they would be interested in voting for something when they've been touting um, n- not having the federal government pay for things. So having so if the federal government is still going to pay for these things, what is stopping these House members from wanting to vote for this? I think that the reason they might is because this looks like at an attempt to bolster the power of the states and, you know, Republicans and right, their states' states. rights thing. So their spin is that the federal government is getting out of health care by just giving the states money so that the states can run their own programs and therefore they come out looking like the states' rights well, guy. Here's my argument on both sides uh, in a way because I will say that I agree with what you're saying, Drexel, because of the fact that the House can be a lot more partisan, like extreme because they're in gerrymandered districts. They only have to appeal to their their really extreme base like Trump always does and pretends like the extreme base is everywhere and he's going to win again. But they really can. And so they have less of a reason to be more moderate, whereas the Senate has to deal with statewide and they have to be more moderate and they have to uh, kind of appease their entire state population. So for them, it's a lot harder to take the risk. And that's why we saw the House vote for repealing Obamacare the first time around, because they have less to lose than the Senate does. Okay, but let me try arguing with that. Isn't it true that the Uh, subsidies that are being pulled would affect the poorer states, many of them Republican. Mm -hmm. So these people, once they realize that it would affect them, will show up in hordes to their um, town halls. Yeah, that, that's, that's what you'd like to think. Ideally, that's what I'd like to in think. a perfect yes. world, well, you would think that. I was yes. going to say an idealist like view is that <clears throat> these representatives realize that pulling those subsidies would mean that the lower class, those who are in poverty, for example, would end up having to get on wealth, get get more tax uh, help. Oh, there you go. Right? It's going to be more it's, expensive. It's going to be more expensive in yeah. the long run, if by thinking wisely. And the middle class won't be able to get that help from from the government because they're middle class and and they're going to be the ones that are pissed and will show up and and demand see, some help and that they're thinking long term maybe that's, I don't, that's, I know. that's my only and then we're going to move on to tax cuts here in a second my only argument with that mm-hmm. is <clears throat> that Republic, the Republican argument is never about helping the American family so much as it is keeping the federal government out of spending right. uh, out of spending all this money so their argument has never been well I want to do this so that you don't have to spend more money on the other side well we know they're going to spend more money on the other side regardless you take this up away, they're going to have to spend more money. Mm-hmm. So they argue. So they can't argue that that yeah. what you, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, I it, agree. We, giving the states more flexibility holds more weight for them. I'm sure, and I'm sure that's one of the primary reasons. But yeah. well, and my last thing I would just say is the only reason why I think that the House members may jump at voting is if they realize that the instability of of letting these subsidies die is going to add. Too much of a, me- of a mess that voters are now blaming Republicans for the health care debacle, and it's no longer Obamacare. It's now squarely Republicans. And if they feel that's too much of a risk, that they will definitely jump on board and try to save the subsidies. That's the only way I can see that actually happening. Well, hopefully, Democrats will fix that messaging problem and uh, yes. figure out a better way to spin it in the Democrats' favor, which, you know, Patty Murray's been working on this forever, and so is Lamar Alexander, and, um, you know, hopefully, we'll see what happens. Um, but. 
The other big thing that Congress, because well, Congress has a big plate. Um, I know they only get one scoop of ice cream uh, in the Trump White House, but they, they got Who a big plate. Who eats ice cream on a plate? Uh, <laughs> First thing that occurred to me. I know. <laughs> um, but tax cuts coming up. See, do you guys think it's going to pass this year? No. Even after today? So today? This is the first time that I agree with Mitch McConnell. I mean, he didn't overtly come out and say right, right. it wasn't, but I don't think it will. But no. today, John McCain, uh, Ted Cochran's come is back in the Senate now. He was um, on medical leave for a little bit, which kind of hurt their number, the Republican numbers a little bit. Um, and then John McCain came out today and said that he would vote uh, for the budget because um, they have to pass the budget to get to tax right. cuts. Uh, so it's kind of their first step it's in doing that. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is giving a speech today on tax uh, reform, which every time he gets up, I don't think he has a clue of what he's talking about. Um, uh, when it, when he was it, like, he are you doing tax cuts or tax reform? No, we right. are doing tax cuts. <laughs> right. Three sentences later, we're doing tax cuts and tax reform. Right, 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 right. right. He has, he, yeah, he, he doesn't. Well, you're reforming something. So um, what do you guys think, Brooke, what do you think is the best way to get the message across that no American family benefits from these tax cuts? From the ones proposed. From the ones being proposed. Well, the Koch family does. <laughs> yeah, sure. The ones at the top. Yeah, exactly. Right. Certainly. So the you Waltons, mean the, well, yeah, exactly. the Trumps. <laughs> the Trumps. Um, what, you asked me what would be the best. What do, you, what do you think is the, how do you think the Democrats should, yeah, really because message tr- Trump this. is, I mean, just, you know, over and over repeating, this is good for the middle class. This is good for Americans. You are going to be paying less in taxes. And it's just not true. So it's how so do we hard say it in a way that they can hear it? The middle American or the, the average American to understand the way not only our tax system works, but how it all affects everything within our governmental system. So maybe look finding a way to simplify it for Americans so they really understand what that means and what that entails for How about it looks like it's going to be lowered exactly. but in we reality might have to bring it's out, not like, we right. might have to bring out like actual pictures I was like the maybe a powerpoint charts. we need to schoolhouse rock yes. schoolhouse rock you know, I think lots of animation we should if do that the demo, if, if the DNC <laughs> rolled out Schoolhouse Rock versions of messages. It would be great if they did bring. It back would work. It would help Rock. Trump. He could figure like what the Iran nuclear deal is. The difference between yeah, the Persian might, Gulf and the Arabian Gulf. That's what he called the Persian <laughs> Gulf. <laughs> he, he might flip to be a Democrat once he figures out that it's not helping people like, like he thought it was going to. Uh, they can keep him. I, don't know. Uh, I mean, really, you're saying how do you truly educate America? Because right. they, we aren't all. As but I, we bring the show far and wide. I know, but I but I will say the only good thing is, and and you know a lot of people are like oh polling is off and everything, but the, the way the tax reform, tax cut, whatever you want to call it, looks today, a majority of Americans do not support it. Right, because they realize that they're being thing. lied to. No, they don't support this this but present is it, form. Is it because they realize that the president's lying to them, or? I think it's it, it's because people are actually looking at it and seeing that it's not going to help. Middle class families like it looks like it's going to help. It's going to be helping the the you know one percent and and so the majority just like when they were trying to repeal Obamacare, the majority of Americans did not support it. So not to say it won't pass, but the good news is at least some people are paying attention, and those people are not for it in its present form. And that's why I don't think it's going to pass this year because I think by the time they can come up to an agreement of such a big colossal thing, it's it's just. They're, they're going to run out of time. And, and it'll be July, and, and there'll right. be an election, and, be, and they're not going right. to want to do it. So, okay, so I want to ask everybody real quick. So we, we, we know we just talked about where Republicans are 
let's talk about the Republican mindset real quick. Um, I'm gonna have to reach way back to early 2000. Um, do you guys don't hurt yourself? <laughs> do you guys think that because we talk about you know we know that Republicans and conservatives don't like to hear that they're voting against their best interest. Best interest. Yeah. They they just don't like to hear that. So obviously there there needs to be a different message from Democrats to get that that point across. But do you guys we. I, I feel like Republican voters don't vote for the economic message that Republicans put out there. Is it the social aspects of and the civil rights aspects of the Republicans are putting out there that you guys that Republicans are Republican voters are voting for these people? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, there is a lot the, of that. Absolutely. But I think that yes. they're also being sold that the trickle-down theory, yeah. the Republican conservative model for success in the economy and employment, I mean, people are still buying it. Mm-hmm. it there goes is back, some of that, but yes. It goes back to that point that, we, that, we've, that I've made before, and I know we've all talked about mm-hmm. before, that morality, or that, that, that idea that Americans are inherently good, that we believe that our... That if you give money back to the companies, the company's going to do for us what th- that what we've been told to do. Right. And we've seen that that has not happened. So how do you remind these people that the companies aren't going to be there for you? Just because if we, if we give tax cuts to corporations, they're not going to, you're not going to see that money. How do you remind people that they're not going to see that money at all? Because it's got to go back into shareholders. Shareholders come first. Right, before the company. In, in, in companies, before, co- yeah. It's a hard line because you don't even have that. But look, you were going back to Drexel. There are people that fear the changing demographics in this country and the globalization of this country. And, uh, you know, Trump and a lot of the Republican candidates were speaking to them about this making America great again and sort of this um, nationalistic approach. And for a lot of these people, especially in rural areas, and in manufacturing and blue-collar jobs, they're kind of fearful of the other, and they're fearful of the changes that are happening so fast where the urban areas are already there and moving forward and kind of embracing this globalization because there's just more diversity and more economic stuff is happening with other countries and other places. And uh, But for the rest of the country, there's still a little bit of that fear of that unknown, and in a way, the Republicans are still selling that, like, we're putting you first, and, you know, we're, we're number one, and... Everything's great, We're and just follow us to the good old days, the good old oh, days and whatever that is right. for you, if that's the 1950s. Um, so there is some <clears> of that, um, of those undertones going on besides just the economic message, and, and, that's, and that's the hard thing uh, for the Democrats now is to be able to bridge that gap with the working white class uh, people in the rural areas with the movement of the uh, urban, um, diverse and it's hard to, to get both of those sides there, and, and, and that's going to be a challenge for Democrats just moving forward in, in some midterms and everything, how you can appeal to sort of both of those sides there. Yeah. Um, um, Brooke, uh, I want to – because we were talking – you mentioned something earlier about foreign policy. I just want to real quick get your thoughts on the president's comments the on um, – <laughs> On President Obama and past presidents uh, not oh, calling gosh. the families of fallen soldiers. Well, I love, first of all, that he was just fact-checked in present time. 
He said that, right? <laughs> right. And then someone spoke up and said, so are you saying that Obama did not call any families? And he's like, well, and then he's stuttering over his words. Well, I heard that he didn't, but I'm, he probably did. I mean, I'm sure he did. I heard that he had called some families, not that many. He doesn't do it oh that often. God. I mean, that was the succession. We saw the lie unfold and then him backtrack entirely. And we know that that's not true. We saw Obama visit families of fallen soldiers right. when that happened. I mean, this person <laughs> is, I think he's just, he lies so much that it just is second nature to him now. And I think that he, begin, you know, when you lie so but much, is it, but do you, think you he's begin lying? to believe, your, believe do you, your lies. Do you think that he's lying or do you think that he's just regurgitating things that he's heard? Because he did say, I was told that his, this. No, so he his, just hears it on the way I out the door? I think that's a lie, too. I think his M.O. is well, just he getting this other people. Is be- belittling other people so that he can make himself look better. It's the whole, let me make myself look like the better, more <laughs> empathetic because how many times has he said the phrase, people are saying, right. when no people are saying exactly. the next words that come out of his mouth? But it exactly. came out today that the, 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 the President Obama may or may not have called General Kelly when General Kelly's son died. So I feel like Donald Trump heard a story in the White House that, oh, did oh I don't know if President Obama called General Kelly or General Kelly only got a, 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 like a, a form, not a form letter, but a, you know, a signed letter from the president because we know President Obama liked to write a lot. And so maybe he heard that story and then like he thought that that would bridge the gap between him and General Kelly and like it was going to become a I think he's been talking to the president of the Virgin Islands for too much yeah. in his head is what he's been doing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, himself. Can I, I want to get like 10 second thought, Scott. There, there was an ambush in Niger of four soldiers. Trump hasn't said much about right. it. I haven't heard very much no, said, but is this perhaps the next Benghazi? Well, I was just going to say, when are they going to open up the investigation exactly. into the Niger attacks here? Because it is hard, and it's hard, and it's absolutely horrible what happened. And the fact that he was talking about former presidents not calling when we lost uh, four service members that paid the ultimate sacrifice—I mean, it's horrendous. It's horrible. Right. And uh, there were others again, injured so, too, yes, besides the four who yeah. died. And it's in this pettiness, and again, like you said, then where's the investigation here? Well, we this. we it's know horrible. who's not going to investigate, and that's going to be Congress. Right. They're not going to do anything about it. Well, listen, uh, that's uh, listen, that's that's all the time that we have for uh, a panel discussion right now. You guys have to come back because I, I do want to talk in the next few weeks about the opioid crisis and, of course, oh. trade. We got to have a big conversation about trade. Oh, um, opioid is going to be we've good. We've got to talk about that. Oh yeah. Uh, mm. What we got in the spotlight? Ah, we have one other. One other? Is this the last? No, this is not the last week. week. Okay, but this week we are spotlighting Support Connection, Inc. because they're a not-for-profit organization that provides emotional, educational, and social support for families and friends affected by breast and ovarian cancer. Yep, you guys can check it out at supportconnection.org. For more information, we threw up the the splash page uh, for you guys to see. Um, great show. Thanks to Garland uh, Gilchrist the second for coming on today's show. Um, as always, we love your viewer feedback and listeners, so continue to leave your comments on the thoughts and show below. Before we go, though, yeah. last week our engineer, Stephen, said that he loves pumpkin. <gasps> so, <laughs> so I went and got him some pumpkin spice nice. flavor oh creamed Oreos because we talked about it last week. Of course, so <laughs> thanks, for uh, Stephen, for uh, making us look good Are every you week. To kill him? Uh, don't forget to check out the This Is Us after show uh, that's coming on later tonight on Tuesdays, the Survivor after show on Wednesdays, and get the latest. Did we get on... a live read from this company? No, okay. but we will not be showing that. <laughs> um, um, and then get the latest on what to put on your DVR daily with the DVR report. Uh, be sure to follow AfterBuzz TV on all social media to find out when your favorite shows are on.
on. We'll see you all next week. Bye now. Bye. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Spitzbeck, Steve Tyler, after Buzz TV, Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.